Thank you for checking out the Detroit Church Podcast. We're a growing community in the heart of the city, and we exist to awaken Detroit to the greatest adventure of all time. Although the pandemic causes us to adjust our methods, our message stays the same. God, through Jesus, is making all things new. Albert Einstein once said that the most beautiful experience we can have is the mysterious. Whoever does not know it and can no longer wonder, no longer marvel, is as good as dead. And their eyes are dimmed. Now, Brother Albert Einstein said the word mysterious, which for some of us might uh, push us into mysticism or some new agey type of thing. But all he meant, really, was that there has to be an encounter with something larger than ourselves, something greater than us, something that we can't control, we can't even fully easily define, but something that when we meet it, when we connect to it, changes everything about us. Now, I don't know if you're the kind of person who makes space for the divine, who makes space for God to meet you in unexpected ways. Some of us love this. Some of us wake up every day going, yes, today is the day God will do something crazy, something supernatural. Others of us, if we're honest, we have planned our days. We believe in some degree of standardization with our days. And outside of devotion times and the sacred spaces that we've created for God, we're really not looking for the sublime to enter into our everyday lives. Most of us sometimes even get inconvenienced when God presses his way into our space. I don't know if you know it or not, but Jesus is the embodiment of being exactly what you need, but not showing up the way you would like him to. What we see all throughout the book of John is Jesus showing up, manifesting these signs and these wonders, these miracles, bringing the awe and the wonder into the life of God's people. And unfortunately, the group that has the biggest problem with it are those who are said to understand God, to know Him, to know the law. Ironically, the people who know the most about God are the people who are the least aware of His presence among them. This is where we find ourselves and this is where we start this passage today in John, uh, specifically verses 22 to verses 42. This is the sentiment that's happening as God's people uh, are really, uh, some are believing and some are receiving and others, specifically the elite, the Jewish leaders, the would-be Bible scholars of the day. These are the ones that are struggling the most with who Jesus is and with what he's doing. They can't fathom that 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 this man who would call himself God who would do the things that he does which no one else had done up to that point also has the audacity to do it on the Sabbath for them God knows better <laughs> God would not break such a rule God would not be so petty as to come in a way that they didn't see coming God would not be outside of their control proving they don't know God at all. If there's one thing we have learned about God as we study John, we study and we learn and we see that God will not be controlled by you or I. Jesus proves that God is absolutely for us, absolutely loves us, but loves us enough 
to force his way into our space so that we might receive not just what we think we want, but what our hearts, the soul inside of us actually longs for. That's what we find in Jesus. And that's what we see in this passage. Join me, let's dig in. At the time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. So the Jews gathered around him and they said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And I and the Father are one. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. And Jesus answered them, I've shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. If we back up just a little bit, we can actually see that the Jews in this moment, who John often refers to the Jewish leaders, uh, have actually surrounded Jesus. Now, you might look at this and think, oh, well, they're just leaning in. They want a close seat. They want to know what he's going to say. They really want to believe in him and they're struggling. They're just trying to hear. Well, this verb in the Greek language, uh, surround or come around, actually is often used as a military strategy, as in surrounding enemies. This is not a happy, fun group of guys coming to listen to the guy that they believe is the Messiah and get a good earful of what he has to say. This is actually them accusing. They're actually coming together hoping he will say something that they can accuse him for, hoping that he gives them just enough to be able to hang him with, essentially. They aren't coming together in some happy-go-lucky positive space. They're actually trying to set a trap. They come around and say, hey, Jesus, tell us plainly if you're the Christ or not. What is this? This is basically, we want to make sure, we want to have you on record as being blasphemous. Like, we need a clear answer from you. Are you or are you not the Messiah? To which Jesus then responds, I told you already. You just don't believe. And then he explains to them what it means uh, about how they aren't his sheep. Now this is interesting because just a few verses earlier, uh, he actually starts to tell them how they're not good shepherds, that they've not been good leaders of God's flock or God's sheep. Now he's doubling down and saying, not only are they not good shepherds, they're not good sheep. They're not even in his flock, he said. You would believe if you were my sheep because my sheep know me and they follow me. He's saying they aren't in the flock. They aren't his sheep. Now let's be clear here. These guys are the elite. They're the scholars. They're the ones you go to when you want to get a prayer through or when you want some divine wisdom. These are the, the, the seminary teachers of the day. 
these are the guys who hold the cards. They're the ones we go to when we're stuck on that scripture and it's just not making sense to us. These are the guys that Jesus is saying, yeah, with all that knowledge you got, all of the laws that you know, all of what you've done, guess what? You are not in my flock. You are not a part of my sheepfold. Imagine how offensive this is to them. And then he triggers them. He hits them hard with verse 30 and literally says, I and the Father are one. Now, I'm not exactly sure what the Hebrew equivalent is of, uh, oh no, he didn't. But this is essentially what they're thinking. They're like, oh, I know this guy named Jesus did not just say he's one with our Father God. The Bible says they went and got stones and John is very clear. This isn't one of those situations where Jesus knows their thoughts of their hearts. You know what I mean? He reads their mind and knows what they're about to do. No, no. They physically went and got boulders. <laughs> they got rocks and stones and they're about to take him out. They are about to kill Jesus. Now, this is interesting to me because just a few chapters later, uh, as my brother David so beautifully expressed uh, killing a man without the Roman permission is actually illegal. They're about to fall into the same trap they were trying to set for Jesus a few chapters earlier. This is what maddening anger does. This is what, me what it means to be blinded by disbelief. It puts you in a space where we, you try to become the accuser and in doing so we fall into the same snares and the same traps that we have set for other people. This is the, 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 the beacon, the model, if you will, of immorality. This is what it means to miss it brilliantly, in a sense. They now are about to try to kill him knowing it's illegal knowing that they will be the ones breaking the law how gracious is Jesus that he doesn't let them do that even his enemies he cares for even those who would do him harm he still saves them and Jesus says well for which one of the incredibly good or another word for that word good is beautiful which one of the good or beautiful works have I done is it is it the the healing the blind man is it the the healing the lame man is it is it because I fed 5,000 not even counting women and children which one of the beautiful miraculous works that are more than just naked displays of power but they're actually signs they actually point to who Jesus is and what he's come to do and he says which one of these works do I deserve to be stoned for? And they say, no, 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 Jesus. It's not about the beautiful works right now. It's about the fact that you, being a man, have made yourself God. Now this is interesting because the truth is, this moment isn't about a man making himself God. That's actually not that epic. It's actually not that unusual. This moment is about God making himself a man. The very thing that they are upset about, the very thing that they're struggling with, gives them an invitation to even get it wrong. It's the fact that Jesus has chosen in his divinity to come as a man, to even give them the opportunity to reject him is his grace. <sighs> What God do you know brings himself, makes himself so low that he can be rejected by someone that isn't as high as he is? This is the God we serve. This is the Jesus that we love. 
This is who we lay our lives down for. The kind of God that esteems others higher than himself. I don't know about you, but over the last few weeks, I've found myself having to lay my wheel down at times and, and lay the part of me that just wants to kind of retreat inward. I gotta lay that down and have conversations that sometimes I don't feel like having. I gotta be a part of, of interracial spaces and conversations and sometimes I'd rather just chill. I'd rather not do deep dives on Facebook statuses and all of that. And I have to find myself being like Jesus and esteeming others higher than myself. And what does that mean in a time and space where I, everybody literally Everybody is having conversations. Everybody believes they're right right now. Everybody believes they have the missing piece of this conversation. What does it mean for us to esteem others higher than ourselves? Which is the exact model that Jesus shows us, that he gives to us even in this moment. They're upset because they believe Jesus is being blasphemous by being a man and acting as if he's God, not knowing he is God who has made himself a man. He has come to earth so that we might be saved, might be forever rescued, might never have to know what it's like to live apart from wonder or awe or beauty so that we would never have a wonderless existence. We are literally being invited into the beauty of belief. This is interesting because this is actually one of the last times that we'll see Jesus pleading with these men. This is one of the last times where we'll see in scripture, especially in the book of John, it starts to shift after this and it will become more inward, more about the disciples and, and the, the story in a sense will kind of start to change going forward. But it's incredible that Jesus won't let the public ministry in John end without being very clear about his appeal for those who even wrestle with their belief to have a chance and have the invitation to know him, to be a part of him, to believe on him. If I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the father is in me and I am in the father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. He went away again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained and many came to him and they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Jesus is saying here, he's begging, pleading almost, giving them an opportunity to believe in him. He even says something that I think most of us would be shocked at. Like he actually, uh, after technically debunking their idea of blasphemy by bringing up Psalms uh, 82, uh, and as he brings up Psalm 82, verse 6 and 7, he actually highlights the fact that uh, God actually used the term, ye are gods. Uh, and there's been debate about if it, this was the judges or if this was all of Israel. But when he says that they, the law can't be broken, the law can't be kind of pieced through to take one part and reject another, he's simply technically uh, debunking that, that he actually has, in fact, blasphemed. He has it. He's proving that. And then he goes on to say, hey, uh, if I'm not doing the work of my father, then don't believe me. He says, but if I am, even if you don't believe me, believe the work. Now this 
It's shocking, right? Most of us would not say that if you were trying to get somebody to believe you. You want them to believe you, right? You're, you're, you're pleading that case. He is so uh, established by his works and what he's done that he confidently says, hey, not just, uh, it's not just how you feel about me. He says, just be open to beauty and to wonder. He says, just examine what I have done. The way he's opened blinded eyes, the way uh, he had the conversation with the Samaritan woman, the way he has made himself available for people, the way he spent time with people. Even the conversation is a part of his works. It's a part of the fact that the, the Son of God has come to seek and to save those who are lost. And it's evidenced in this moment right here. He's saying, look at the works. Look at the good works. Look at the beauty. Open yourself up for wonder. Disbelief keeps us wonderless. It keeps us in this standardized version of life where everything makes sense and it starts on time and it ends on time and there's no shock, there's no awe, there's no marvel. Just like Albert Einstein says, everything happens just as we plan it or is our response to what didn't happen as we planned it. He's saying this is not the life that we've been called into. This is not the adventure that the human experience is supposed to be known for and by. Jesus is actually reminding us of what is mostly human, mostly uh, uh, the part of the way that we've been wired, which is this deep longing for eternity, this longing for something that we cannot satisfy here on earth. Each of us has this inner desire uh, for love and for truth and for beauty and it didn't come from us and it won't end with us it'll actually end on that blessed day when we see Jesus as he truly is Jesus is reminding us even in this conversation he's reminding us of what we ultimately really truly want and what we want is not a religious experience these guys are known for having an impressive religion. Their belief systems, their discipline, it's impressive. And with all of their righteousness, with all of the things that they're known for, even their reputation in the community, for Jesus, none of that means anything. <laughs> their righteousness is filthy rags. I won't even tell you what that breaks down to. It just means your best works are not what gets it done. It's not what pleases God. It definitely does not impress Jesus. He is impressed. He loves uh, uh, when we engage him through our belief, through the beauty of believing what he has said, believing what he has done, because they testify to who he really is. Is. All of this takes place during the Feast of Dedication. And that's how this passage actually opens in verse 22. Uh, and the Feast of Dedication is a commemorative feast. And unlike some of the other feasts, this one doesn't go back thousands and thousands of years. It actually only goes back about a couple hundred years before this particular uh, book was written, uh, late BC. And what happens is that the temple in Jerusalem is actually besieged by the king of Syria, a man named Antiochus. And as he besieges the temple, he actually sets up pagan 
worship and idolatry and prostitution all inside the temple. He takes what was supposed to be sacred and in the space that was supposed to be for God to dwell with his people, the tangible presence and glory of God. He takes that and basically pollutes it, contaminates it with all of this glory to self and, 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 and sex and sexuality and, 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 and all of these selfish gratifications. And a few years later, a man by the name of Judas Maccabeus actually uh, takes back the temple and he leads this charge to rededicate it. Now, it's this uh, also called the, the Feast of Lights or the Festival of Lights. And the reason was because they used to light these uh, candles and they would light candles all over the city. It's also known uh, as Hanukkah, which actually is the word for rededication. You'll note that it starts on December 25th and lasts for about eight days. Very early on in this process of rededicating the temple, they found just enough oil uh, to burn for one day. Miraculously, this oil actually ended up lasting for eight days for the full uh, time that it would take to purify more oil. So that's why candles would actually be lit all over the city. This is why they called it the Festival or the Feast of Lights. Now, what's interesting about this backdrop is that Jesus actually says in verse 36 that God consecrated and sent him. Notice they bypassed it. They just wanted to stone him. They didn't even pay attention to it. But when Jesus says this, what he's actually connecting with is the feast of dedication. He's saying, hey, right now, as a people, we're celebrating uh, uh, what it means for God to rededicate the temple unto himself, right? To set it apart, to set it uh, aside as something solely for him. And he says, oddly enough, you guys aren't seeing, I'm here consecrated by God to consecrate you to set you apart to set me apart for us to become now the temple of the Holy Spirit where it's not just about a building we go to but now we get to house his glory we get to be the place where he dwells where he tabernacles they're missing it in their wonderlessness their unbelief they are unable to see the beauty that Jesus invites them into. He is giving them the chance, and you and me too. He's given us an opportunity to believe in him. However you have thought about Jesus, whatever you have thought about Jesus, my prayer is that you would come to know who he is, that you would come to trust him, not just uh, the woke Jesus, or the Jesus who keeps you comfortable in your silo, or the Jesus that plays the music you like. No. Get to know the full biblical version of Jesus, a God of justice, a God of love, that Jesus is the one who lays his life down. And at the same time, please believe Jesus definitely is not a pushover. Jesus is not someone uh, who's spineless or who's apathetic. He is actually motivated by love. It's his love that keeps him going back and forth with these stubborn blind Jewish leaders and he keeps engaging them keep giving them an opportunity to get it right he keeps going back and forth and for most of us if we're honest by about chapter five or six we would have moved on <laughs> we would have found a different group of people he actually 
does after this. The Bible says he goes back across the Jordan, not in a, a, a Jerusalem, not in this city where uh, it's 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 the epicenter of the temple and the worship and, and religiosity and all of that. And there, people come to him and they believe. He actually does shift his focus, but he doesn't do that without first making it very clear that he comes as an opportunity to believe, as an opportunity to step into the wonder and the bigness, the greatness, the vastness of what life is like when we are driven not by our pursuit of just happiness, but when we are driven by our longing for only that that truly satisfies us. And that is Jesus. That is a connection and a relationship with God our Father. So, no matter where you are here today, no matter what kind of week you have had, I want you to know that Jesus is here for you, that he is inviting you to lay down your burden. He's inviting you to lay down your fatigue, maybe even your Zoom fatigue or your YouTube fatigue. Maybe you've seen one too many screens this week and guess what? That is fine. Jesus invites you to lay your burden down so that you might pick up true belief so that you might know who he is and what he's able to do in the life of surrendered believers like you and me. Our city needs us to truly believe in who Jesus is and to make his life a reality in our lives. My prayer is that you are trusting in him, that you are making space in your life for the sublime, for the divine, for something bigger and greater than just your to-do list or your schedule, that you are opening yourself up to beauty and to good things because all good gifts come from God and ultimately open hearts that trace back these good things find their creator the ultimate artist the greatest creator that there has ever been and that is God our father who sent his son to die for you and me so that we might know what it means to taste eternal life there's a quote by William Blake unless the eye catch fire the God will not be seen unless the ear catch fire the God will not be heard unless the tongue catch fire the God will not be named unless the heart catch fire the God will not be loved and unless the mind catch fire the God will not be known Jesus came so that we would know the God that loves us belief is how we access who God is and what he's done. Please, my prayer is not for us to look at what he's done and the incredible things around us and let these things distract or taint our ability to be available in our hearts to believe the unbelievable, which is that God would become a man, come to earth, die in our place, raise again and with that he would take captivity captive and would give to us true and utter freedom freedom to believe here and now freedom to rest in him i pray that you receive that love that freedom that joy with jesus we can believe the unbelievable in him even the impossible becomes possible God bless you. Thank you for listening to the Detroit Church Podcast. 
we'd love you to subscribe, like, and rate. And if you're not already, you can follow us on social media by searching for Detroit Church. 